It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Hi there, welcome to the eighth episode of this season of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. I hadn't even realized until I started recording that this is our 50th ever episode and I really should be so blown away that I've kept things going this long, but I'm not somehow... I guess it's just become a habit, and I just stopped noticing milestones. But anyway, 50 episodes. I think that's pretty amazing, and I'm very proud to have made it this far. I would like to thank every one of you for sticking with me this long, and I'd also like to ask you to please let me know what you'd like me to do for the next 50 episodes. Tragically, for such a special episode, we're late. I usually try to get these shows published and downloadable by 1 a.m. South African time on the day that was promised. Unfortunately, this has been a pretty wild week for me as we just moved house. The urban astronomer stopped being urban about seven years ago when I moved my family out to a small cottage on a farm in a nature reserve outside of town. The peace and silence was incredible. The skies were dark and it was just wonderful to live in a relatively wild environment like that. But the family's grown older and we have kids going to school in town. The commute was getting unbearable and the dirty side of country life was getting pretty bad too. The dust, so much dust. The state of my car from pounding down those badly maintained gravel roads day after day. Ugh. It was nice, but we're back in the suburbs now. No plans yet to rename the show to Suburban Astronomer, though. Now, I'd like to give a special shout-out to our Patreon supporters, Catherine, Peter, Frank Tippin, and most recently, George Palmer. I really appreciate every cent that you guys send me. It's a real motivation to keep doing my best, and I am proud to know that I am delivering what I promised to you. And with that, let's get started with the show. Today's Science Explaining Bit is not a question that anybody specifically sends to me, but it's rather something that people are generally quite curious about. How am I, tireless crusader for the truth, able to justify my constant apparent defense of the old Ptolemaic system of a universe made from crystal spheres centered on the Earth? Well, I think I make a pretty good argument, and here it is. Every now and then, in one of my articles or podcast episodes, I'll mention the old geocentric models of the universe which my medieval European ancestors believed in, and rather than focus on how pioneering thinkers like Copernicus and Galileo were persecuted in defense of those ideas, I'll defend them as being quite reasonable. And more than one person has asked me why I would say such a stupid thing. The idea that the Earth is at the center of the universe is demonstrably wrong, after all, and the only people who still believe such things are the sorts who also think that the Earth is flat or hollow and that the Illuminati is spraying chemicals out the backs of aircraft to keep the population compliant. But I stand by my position. Not only was the geocentric model a reasonable thing to believe in a world without sophisticated astronomical instruments, it also worked. 
By the time of Copernicus, the model had been refined and improved to the point where astrologers could reliably and accurately predict where everything in the sky was going to be years in advance. Their predictions about how these forecasts would affect earthly affairs were maybe not so good, but their astrometry was spot on. So, how did that work? And when Galileo found evidence that it might not be true, why was it worth using the full legal power of the Roman Catholic Church to protect the academic status quo? To answer that, we're going to have to go back in time to see what Plato had to say about the subject some 2,400 years ago. Plato was the father of modern Western philosophy, and as a result, his thinking has influenced all areas of academic thought since then. Plato said that it was impossible to ever know what was really happening in the world because our human senses were flawed and limited. We've all seen things that aren't there, heard phantom noises, thought we felt our phones buzzing in our pockets only to find that there were no notifications. We've all had dreams where we did not know that we were dreaming, and I'm pretty sure most of us have had moments when something happens that is so unexpected that we wonder if we're even awake. Like, maybe this is all a dream and we're about to wake up. Other philosophers from other cultures have famously asked, was I a man dreaming that I was a butterfly, or am I a butterfly dreaming that I was a man? Descartes wanted to know how we could know that anything in the world was real and that we weren't simply being deceived through our senses by some sort of trickster devil. And in modern times, we sometimes ask if this is real or are we still in the Matrix? So Plato figured that if you can't trust the evidence of your own eyes, then you need to rely on pure reason if you want to find truth. The best way to understand the universe, therefore, is to start by thinking about the most perfect forms of nature and extrapolate from there. And the most perfect form of all is the sphere. So logically, the heavens, where the gods live, must also be spherical. Now, although Plato was no astronomer, he was aware of the way that stars and planets move through the sky. He decided that the only possible explanation was that those objects were attached to gigantic spheres which rotated at constant speeds. Plato had several students who took these ideas about the structure of the universe and improved upon them to better suit the way things actually moved in the sky. But the one we remember most strongly is Aristotle. Aristotle wrote in great depth about a whole range of subjects and ended up being seen as the main authority on all of them for centuries afterwards. Even scholars in the Arab world were citing him and basing their work on his teachings until well into the Middle Ages. His way of thinking about the world was based on Plato's principle that logical thoughts and reason were always going to be more reliable than flawed observations. So if you could find a few basic facts that were definitely, obviously true, then anything that you could derive logically from these facts had to be true also. It's, it's a pretty solid system, and it's the entire basis of mathematics. 
Unfortunately, it tends not to work so well in the physical world because it turns out that concrete knowable facts are hard to find, and what seems obvious might in fact not be true after all, something he should have realized from Plato's teachings. One of these first principles, these obviously true facts, was that the heavens are perfect, theologically and mathematically perfect. It was also obvious that the Earth was the unmoving center of the universe because, well, look around. The ground doesn't move, but the sun and stars do, and they quite clearly move in circles around the Earth. It probably never occurred to them that this is just an illusion caused by our limited perspective. Still, we should remember that he lived in a world without telescopes, without any sophisticated astronomical instruments, and the available evidence certainly did seem to support what he said. Now, it's worth pointing out that other thinkers of the time had other ideas, including Aristarchus. Aristarchus reasoned that a heavenly fire should be the centre of the universe, and such a fire would obviously be the sun. He not only worked out that all the planets must then orbit the sun, but that the Earth orbited it as well. He even correctly set the order of the planets. He even argued with sun worshippers that Aristotle should be charged with heresy for demoting the sun from its critical central place in the universe. In the end, however, Aristotle was so influential in so many eras that he came to be seen by later generations as an almost infallible intellectual, and so it was his ideas about the universe which ended up dominating Western thought. So he developed this model where the universe is composed of imperfect Earth, which changes over time, and perfect Heaven, which doesn't. He expanded upon Plato's idea of heavenly spheres and decided that they were real physical hard objects. He worked out that there must be 55 of these spheres, all fitting within one another, surrounding the Earth, and each of these spheres had a light attached to it. They all rotated around the Earth, but at slightly different speeds. The Sun's sphere rotated once every 24 hours, for example, to give us night and day, while the stars rotated slightly faster to allow for their gradual cycle across the seasons. In his model, the Earth was not merely placed at the centre of the universe, it was the centre of the universe, and therefore all circular motions in the heavens had to be centred on Earth. Unfortunately, all this brilliant logical thinking didn't get a very useful model of the universe. If all motion was centered around the Earth, and if everything in space moved in a circle at a constant speed, then everything in the sky would move in the same way. But astronomers knew that this wasn't the case. The sun, the stars, and moon seemed to obey the rules, as near as anybody could tell, but the planets did not. The speeds at which they travelled through the skies changed visibly from week to week, even from day to day at times, and every now and then they not only slowed down, but came to a complete stop, reversed direction, stopped again, and then continued back on their merry way. How on earth could that be? So, about 500 years later, a man called Claudius Ptolemy tried to update Aristotle's model. Ptolemy was both a mathematician and an astronomer. As a mathematician, 
He had a specific view about how truth and reason should work. And part of that view was that the first principles used by Plato and Aristotle were not necessarily true. So he abandoned the idea that all motion must be centered on the Earth and added a system of epicycles to the motions of the planets. In other words, the planets were not glued permanently to these solid crystal spheres which carried them around, but moved in slow circles around a point on those spheres. Now, it's not clear whether he genuinely believed that the crystal spheres existed, but what he actually produced was a mathematical model that predicted quite accurately where any object in the sky would be in the near future. And with that, we had a system that worked. It wasn't perfect, but it was good enough. The mathematical model of planetary motions, which described the motions of the planets as a small wheel turning slowly on the rim of a larger wheel, did a pretty decent job of predicting where the planets would be at any particular date in the future. So, work stopped, and that was the standard model for how the universe worked for more than a thousand years. If you went to school, that was what you would be taught, and astrologers made a good career charting the heavens according to this model to reliably predict conjunctions, eclipses, and other heavenly phenomena. We got complacent that we had it all figured it out. It's no wonder that surprises in the night sky, new objects like novas and comets that weren't accounted for in this model, they were always so frightening, since these were obviously disruptions to the natural order, which means disruptions to God's creation, and therefore they're bad. Unfortunately for the Ptolemaic system, and for the astrologers who used it, the model was not perfect, and cracks started showing. See, it was good, but the maths they used for the predictions were just geometric approximations based on a faulty view of how the solar system is built. And while the errors were small at first, too small to detect with the naked eye or even the basic pointing instruments they had available, they did add up over time. By the time a thousand years had passed, the accumulated area was impossible to ignore. Now, in practical terms, it wasn't too serious. You just start your calculations from scratch based on today's measurements, and you'll be accurate for another good long time. But it was worrying, because if the system was so perfect, then there should be no errors at all. But nobody wanted to try too hard to solve the problem. Looking too closely at the standard model would mean questioning the great and mighty Aristotle, and that would be the peak of arrogance. Who are you to think that you know better than the greatest mind of all time, mighty Aristotle himself? It's interesting to think that at this point, even the powerful Roman Catholic Church had adopted Aristotle's teachings as being almost as unimpeachable as the Holy Bible. Aristotle's wisdom was respected and considered unimpeachable. In fact, quite a lot of medieval philosophy tries to explain the question of how a pagan like Aristotle could be so wise when God is the one and only source of all goodness and wisdom. 
much of the standard dogma, the established and recorded beliefs of the church that had been worked out and accumulated over the centuries, relied on using Aristotle's logical processes to learn how to apply the ancient writings of the Bible to current-day situations and how to deal with the everyday problems that aren't specifically mentioned in the Bible. Aristotle was, well, he was quite permanently planted on top of a very high pedestal. So that's the situation in 1473, when a young man called Nikolaj Kopernik was born in what we today call Poland. As a young man, he studied astronomy at the University of Krakow, although the astronomy of the day was more about casting horoscopes and drawing calendars than the study of the universe beyond Earth, which is what we do today. Once he had a bit of education, he adopted the Latin form of his name, Copernicus. Copernicus was definitely a bit of a bookworm, an academic at heart, so he was very lucky to have an uncle who held an important position in the church. This uncle advised him to enter the clergy, to work for the church, and pulled some strings to help along, as this was indoor work which would leave him plenty of time to continue his intellectual pursuits. So off he went to Italy to study canon law at the University of Bologna. Once he arrived, though, he ended up sharing accommodations with an astronomy professor who helped him to further study the stars and encourage his interests and improve his observational skills. And so he neglected his religious studies. Over the years, he would return home, accept various jobs in the church, and then leave again to continue his religious studies. The church started growing impatience with him. He wasn't doing the work he'd been hired to do, and he wasn't graduating from the courses that they were paying for. Even when they threatened to cut him off and fire him, like the grumpy dad in some 1980s college movie, he kept focusing on observing the stars and working on his new theories. In 1514, he hand-wrote a booklet called The Little Commentary, and he handed copies out to his friends. It contained his finished theory of the universe, summarized in seven axioms, and this is what they were. Axiom 1. There is no single center to the universe. Axiom 2. The Earth's center is not the center of the universe. 3. The center of the universe is near the sun. 4. The distance from the Earth to the sun is tiny compared with the distance to the stars. 5. The rotation of the Earth accounts for the daily rotation of the stars. 6. The apparent annual cycle of the movements of the sun is caused by the motion of the Earth revolving around it. And 7. The apparent retrograde motion of the planets is caused by the motion of the Earth from which one observes. Now, it's important to note that these axioms were not derived mathematically and he didn't offer any proof to back them up. He simply stated them as obvious facts and they would be the starting points for everything else he wrote. In other words, although they turn out to be broadly true, he was still using the same logical process as Aristotle and Plato of deciding in advance what the truth was and then working out everything else from there. 
His little commentary didn't travel far, but still words spread and he eventually became quite famous as an astronomer. In fact, his work was so admired that when Pope Gregory decided that it was time to abandon the flawed Julian calendar for something that could more reliably predict the dates of Easter, the project that gave us the modern Gregorian calendar that we now use around the world, he actually first offered the job to Copernicus, who turned it down. He was a shy and retiring man, and I think he didn't want the attention or to be at the centre of any controversy. So he worked in private, fleshing out his theories with no outside help, until eventually, shortly before he died, he published his famous De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium. This book took the original ideas from the little commentary and fleshed them out, including the mathematical proofs. Unfortunately, the published version wasn't the same as the manuscripts he personally wrote, thanks to the interference of one Andreas Osiander, who had been delegated to supervise the printing. Osiander was concerned that Copernicus might be opening himself up to persecution from both theologians and the peripatetics, who were the followers of Aristotle's teachings. He tried to persuade Copernicus to add disclaimers to the text, saying that it was all just a fun idea and that it shouldn't be taken too seriously. When Copernicus refused, Osiander took it upon himself to write a disclaimer of his own in Copernicus's name, claiming that the theories in the book were just a cute mathematical model that could be used to chart the planets, and that it wasn't meant to be taken too seriously, and that Aristotle was actually still right after all. It took 50 years for this deception to be discovered, and Copernicus himself never knew what had been added to his book, because he died shortly after it was published. I have to say, though, that as devious and dishonest as that little edition was, it's probably the reason that the book was received so well. So, this book comes out by a very respected astronomer. It's well-received, it's not condemned or even debated that heavily. So, why wasn't it taken seriously? Well... That disclaimer obviously had something to do with it, but there was a more serious problem. Copernicus's model didn't work. When astronomers used the old Ptolemaic system to predict the movements of the planets for a few years in advance, and then did the same thing using Copernicus's model, and then compared the two sets of results to what they then actually saw happening in the sky, Ptolemy won every time. Ptolemy had small errors, but Copernicus's model was much worse. Now, I know, and you know, that he was right about his principles, and he was a good mathematician. His maths weren't wrong, so what happened? Why didn't it work? Well, unfortunately, he made some bad assumptions, and he relied on them as first principles. Like everybody before him, he still believed in perfect spheres and circles as the perfect shapes, and the only possible path that objects in the sky could follow. His theories required the Earth to rotate in sync with its revolution around the Sun, which it obviously doesn't, otherwise a day would last an entire year. It couldn't explain why the moon's orbit changes over the course of a month, where seasons come from, or why the speeds of the planets vary at different points in their orbits. 
This is why it took him so long to finish writing his book. He had to come up with reasons for all of these things, and the result was a bit of a mess. If I can try to summarize it here... The Earth moves in an epicycle on a difference whose centre is a little distance from the Sun. The planets move in a similar way on epicycles, but their difference have no geometrical or physical relation to the Sun. The Moon moves on an epicycle centred on a second epicycle, itself on a difference eccentric to the Earth. The Earth's axis rotates about the pole of the ecliptic, making one revolution and a 26,000th part of a revolution in the sidereal year in the opposite direction to its orbital motion. Yikes! Now, if that word salad didn't completely confuse you as much as it confused me, or if you're even still awake after all that, you'll realize that Copernicus's system is still basically exactly the same as Ptolemy's, complete with crystal spheres and epicycles. All that's really changed is that the sun is now in the middle, the stars are further away, and to try and keep it all working, there's a whole bunch of extra complex mathematical plumbing slapped on top of it. It was much harder to work with than the old system, and even if he could get it to work, the results would still turn out to be all wrong. Even the side details that we know were exactly right, like the stars being extremely far away, it didn't make sense to Monty because if the stars really were that far, then we would see them shift position over the course of a year because of simple parallax, and nobody had ever seen such a thing. Now, I mean, we measure the shift all the time, today, but that's only because the stars are even further than he thought, so that the parallax shifts are really tiny, and it's only in the past century or two that we've had instruments capable of measuring such small movements. So now you see, when I defend the Ptolemaic system with its ridiculous spheres of crystal and vague circles within circles, It's not because I think that it's correct or that I disagree significantly with Copernicus's axioms. It's because, like so many systems that we rely on daily, ranging from the engineering in our cars to the software in our computers to to the legal systems in our courtrooms, the Ptolemaic system was developed and refined over centuries to produce something that works might not be correct, it might not be pretty, and it might not even make a lot of sense, but it worked for what it was meant to do, which was to predict the motions of the planets. And Copernicus's theories, for all their elegance and truthfulness, did not work. Anyway, in his defense, he was well aware of the problems with the model, He points out repeatedly in his own disclaimers that the main purpose of the work is to be able to generate tables of the locations of the planets and that it's really only meant to be read by mathematicians anyway, so these trifling practical problems aren't important. And however he might have hedged around whether the details of the solar system itself were true or just mathematical tricks... He absolutely and definitely did believe that the Earth was not fixed at the center of the universe, but that it moved through space, and he was not afraid to say so. In fact, in the preface that he originally wrote for his book, 
he says the following words. Perhaps there will be babblers who, although completely ignorant of mathematics, nevertheless take it upon themselves to pass judgments on mathematical questions and, badly distorting some passages of scripture to their purpose, will dare find faults with my undertaking and censure it. I disregard them even to the extent as despising their criticism as unfounded. So, whatever other problems we find in his work, we have to respect that he planted the idea that God's creation might not be centered solely on us, and that his was the first serious suggestion that it might be time to abandon almost 1,800 years of reverence for Aristotle. It's even possible that this was the first seed that led to the Reformation and the mighty backlash of the church trying to defend itself from some terrifying new ideas, but we'll talk about that in a later episode. You know, I find the history of astronomy to be really quite fascinating. The approach of looking at what people thought to be true before we came to realize what we now know is so informative. It really helps one to understand how science works, that although we're constantly changing our ideas and theories, each revolution changes the status quo just less than, than what we believed before. Case in point, start with a pre-classical belief that the universe is a random chaotic thing that only works the way it does because the gods make it do so, and therefore it's impossible to know what the gods will make it do next. Then skip to the Greek philosophers who say that actually, no, the gods have put laws in place that the universe has to follow. And if we can figure out those laws, then we'll be able to understand and make predictions about our world. Then we skip ahead to Kepler, Galileo, Newton, showing that the crystal spheres are false and that planets have elliptical orbits made, uh, elliptical orbits because of gravity. And then skip ahead to Einstein saying that, well, actually, gravity works differently than that. Each step both increases the complexity and depth of our understanding while having a smaller, more of an incremental change on the results of what we expect to happen based on those theories. It's, it's fascinating. Anyway, I didn't want to stop that story with Copernicus because I think things get really interesting when Galileo uses a telescope to properly disprove geocentrism and is a total heel about it. And the church, desperately trying to protect itself from the Reformation, sees Galileo as another troublemaker and tries to suppress him. It's all just too fascinating, especially when you look more carefully and learn just how complicated Galileo's relationship with the church and the elites really was. I just didn't really have space to fiddle that in this season, though, unfortunately. But if enough of you mail me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com to ask for it, I will record it as a special bonus episode. For extra motivation to keep producing stuff like this, why not send me a bit of cash to my Patreon account? It's pretty easy. Just go to my website at urban-astronomer.com and click on any of the Patreon links that you'll see dotting the landscape. Follow the prompts to get set up and pledge a few dollars to support me while we build the show up to the huge, ambitious project that I want it to be. And if cash isn't on the table, well, you can always just recommend the Urban Astronomer podcast to a friend and show them how to subscribe or download episodes. I'm busy trying to get listed on Deezer's podcast directory as we speak, but you can already find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and probably all of the smaller directories by now. And if that's not working for you, you can also just click any of the subscribe links on the urban-astronomer.com website and that'll sort you out. 
Now, last episode, I mentioned that we're trying out a new community on the Flick app. It's kind of like a social media network centered around podcasting, but for now at least, it feels more to me like a classic web forum. To try it out, click the link at the bottom of the sidebar on urban-astronomer.com and use the Urban Astronomer join code. You'll see existing conversations for each episode, and there's one to introduce yourself, or you can just start your own. It's still early days, but the team behind Flick are working extra hard to build this thing. And, But even at this stage, it feels like a great place for me just to meet and chat with each one of you. It's completely free. It's uncluttered with non-podcasty stuff. And I look forward to seeing some of you there. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. If you enjoy the show, why not send me a message on the Flick group or tweet me at uastronomer or email me at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. You can tell me whether you prefer the Science Explained bits or the interviews, or if there's anything else you'd like to see me add in the next season. If you'd really like to help, you could also make donations on Patreon through the links on urban-astronomer.com website, or just leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to find the show. You can tell your friends that the next episode drops on the 22nd of October 2019 and I'll be interviewing Nicole Thomas from the University of the Western Cape. Until then though, my name is Alan Fasfeldt and you have been listening to the Urban Astronomer Podcast and I hope you have clear skies. Goodbye. Listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.